There was a guy that used to call me actually quite often. I'm not sure how he heard about me, but he was um, he was a guy in the Air Force. He actually didn't even attend Fellowship Bible Church. I think he called me to just get some encouragement for decisions because he had a horrible time making decisions. The guy's name was Jake, and he would he would call me. I mean, in torment. I mean, torment is not an exaggeration. Um, he would be like the poster child of uh, indecision. He would make a, I was thinking about this, he would make a sleepy snail look impulsive. But anyway, Jake was, um, his wife was putting some pressure on him for some furniture. And so he called me and he was, he was just going round and round on how much money should he spend and, and how to pick out a couch and what couch he should, he should uh, pick out. And so... Uh, this went on and on, you know, so he would, he would be thinking, he would, he would think, you know, what, what color should it be and all that. And uh, about 10 times he called me uh, about this very thing. And he'd call me, and I wouldn't even say, hi, Jake. I would say, is it the couch again? <laughs> and he would say, yeah. And after about 10 times, you know, so at one point his, he was driving his wife mad, but now he's driving me mad. And so um, it, was, it was really pretty crazy. And so he was thinking about colors. He was thinking about red. After the 10th call, I was, he was thinking red. I was seeing red. And I said, man, Jake, just make a decision already. But he just couldn't. And so um, I think he was calling me because he thought maybe I could tell him what God wanted, which I really wasn't very good at doing. But, uh, but he would call me, and then I think maybe he was driving. I think God was seeing red at that point, <laughs> if that's possible. Um, finally, I just told him, hey, Hey, Jake, you, uh, God is not going to sit on that couch, and I'm not either. So I tell you what you should do. You should just do whatever makes your wife happy. And, of course, I knew what would make her happy. She didn't care about the color, but she knew it needed to be high to bed because he would be sleeping on it. <laughs> now, maybe you're kind of a Jake. In decision-making, we call this decidophobia, and he had a bad case of it. Um, and so I've thought about that, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're the kind of person that makes decisions confidently. Uh, you don't try to get them perfect. You just know you've, you've got to move forward, and so you do that. But this series of messages, which is going to be about decision-making, would be for you either way. You could be one of the people that's always second-guessing, or you could be the kind of person that usually rides, you know, yippee yi yi over the next ridge, and we'll... we'll handle it when we get there kind of guy. Uh, you need this series if you, especially if you are haunted by past decisions and, and kind of the way you've made decisions in the past, uh, you're not really, you feel like maybe you're outside the will of God. You've done something that really, uh, where it's almost too late. God was trying to set your GPS and you just didn't listen. And, and then for a few days you were getting recalculating, recalculating, and then whoever was doing that gave up on you. Uh, if do you ever feel that way, uh, you need this series. If you have ever made decisions by putting out fleeces or flipping coins, um, maybe you're like the woman that I was reading about. That was uh, she was nervous. She'd been invited to go on a Holy Land tour, and she couldn't figure out whether she should do that until one morning she woke up woke up at exactly 7:47, and of course the the tour to Israel was going to be flying on you guessed it a 7:47. And then she felt fine. Um, there was a guy that I, I read about that, was, uh, that had bought a yellow car 
because, uh, without even test driving it, because he had had several dreams in a row where everything was yellow. Of course, it turned out to be a lemon. Um, anyway, well, you need this series if you're like too many millennials where you get stymied by the, the sheer volume of options. And, you know, maybe you're pushing 30 and some, of you know, adult transitions that uh, you might have thought would happen by then. They're, they're just, you're, you're a little bit stuck. And you wonder, should you be patient and content or should you press forward and make some bold changes? Um, you need this series if you're a young person because many of the, what we call large decisions, are uh, still ahead of you. And so you'd like some encouragement on how to do that. Or maybe you are a little older and you have kids that you're helping make those choices, and that's always a hard thing. Or you have aging parents who are making some transitions. They're getting their past retirement. Maybe they're, uh, they're getting, uh, their strength is fading, and they're going to have to make some changes, and you want to be able to help them. In fact, on the same week, you could be taking the car keys from your dad and passing them on to your teenager. Uh, well, decision-making is automatically harder and more complicated for Christians. And the reason is because we don't live just to please ourselves, but we live to please God. And now you've got two people with maybe different opinions about things. Um, we assume that God um, might just have a will and a, an idea of what we should do next or what a decision should be. And uh, we realize that if he does, then his decisions and his desires are going to outweigh anything that we would think or want. That's a direct result of the fact that he is God and, and we're not. He's wise in a way we're not. He's infinite. He is in charge of everything, including us. So we submit to those facts as truth. And then we ask the question, what is God's will about this decision that I may be facing? What does God want? Meet Joe. Joe works at Boeing. He's, uh, he's bored out of his gourd. He's not getting promotions and raises the way he thought, and he's uh, feeling underappreciated. And he's heard about a uh, higher-paying job, uh, however, it's in New Mexico. And so he's tempted to take it, but then he's thinking about other things, like uprooting his family and uh, leaving his, uh, his older parents. And, then, uh, and, of course, there's the risk that he's not going to like the job any better anyway. You know, Adam kind of worked, uh, worked us over on that one and ruined work for everybody. But anyway, he, he wakes up in a sweat at night with the question inside, you know, what does God want? He would love to hear what God wants. Um, here's Sarah. Sarah is a, um, is a junior in high school, sweet gal with an intense interest in medicine, maybe a doctor in the making. But she's conflicted because uh, she's thinking about piling up student loans. She's thinking about all the time and money that will have to be invested in a career that just might compete with their other great desire, which is falling in love and raising a, a beautiful family. And so A or B or both, or, you know, consider, you know, maybe staying single or, you know, scratch the medical part. And so she daydreams, you know, she's 35 in her daydream. And wow, is that a stethoscope hanging around my neck? Or is that, uh, you know, a, a slobbering toddler named Bucky? Uh, <laughs> She would love to hear what God wants. Here's Mary. Mary has always wanted to be a missionary. 
uh, ever since summer camp when, you know, the Waldocks were sharing their gospel adventures about India. And she gets these feelings pretty often. But she's married to Bill. Bill, you know, he's okay with missions, but not for him. He's entrenched in his father's construction business. He, uh, for him, missions equals, you know, giving money and obviously praying. And, but every time Mary brings this up, he, he feels pressured. And in fact, he feels a little bit judged, like he's not the spiritual giant that she expected. And so there's tension, uh, tension in their marriage. They would both like God to tell what he wants, sort of nail it down, so to speak. Um, and then there's Ray and Janet. <laughs> They're nearing retirement and making decisions, uh, financial decisions. You know, the nest is empty. They're going to have plenty of time to, uh, uh, to do whatever they want to do. Uh, they could migrate to some other places, a little less expensive to live, play a lot of shuffleboard. But uh, they don't want to separate from their kids and grandkids. And they're thinking, you know, maybe we should downsize at least. But then, you know, there's lots of decisions. You know, hardwood carpets or tile. And a lot of stuff like that. And their health is pretty good. But they don't really want to leave their doctors. And they certainly don't want to leave their church. And then new ministries that could develop, you know, as, you're, as you have more time. Well, they feel like newlyweds again. Lots of choices. And they like the adventure. But it sure would be nice to know what God wants. What does God want? It's the sticky, tricky part. How do you get him to tell you? Wouldn't it be great if the Lord would just text us? You know, you get this text. says, architecture major at Washington State. Meet Marsha by the flagpole. Lucky boy in the fifth. That's the part I like. Okay. Or this one. Drive to Tukwila and attend Moving Water Bible Church. The couple sitting in front of you will turn around and offer you their condo at half price and no interest. Uh, well, we know most days um, we make choices like we did this morning. Uh, things we don't even pray about. You came in, you didn't pray, you know, Lord, where shall I sit today so I will be available to the person that needs me the most? No, you probably sat in your usual place. Uh, you did not go on the left side where Noah Carley has gone before. <laughs> or on the right side where no Absher has gone before. Uh, But we care about our decisions, so we don't necessarily pray about them all. We want all of our choices to please God. But mostly, uh, we don't necessarily even seek direct guidance. But is this how it's supposed to work? When you think, God must certainly have a better opinion than I do about everything, wouldn't it be nice to know what he wants? So we could be struggling a little bit. And we certainly struggle and wonder when it's what we think of a major decision about career or uh, Um, a big financial move of some kind, or relocation, or a marriage choice, something like that. But there's so many choices. I mean, if you had to pray about everything, just think about it. Vacation choices are on your docket right now, where you know you're going to take a week off, and you're not sure what you're going to do with it. Um, College choices, career choices are big ones, marriage choices, but friendship choices, location choices, investment choices, a lot of money kinds of things like retirement and inheritance and living will and then uh, just your budget and how you budget and then banking choices, you know, Key Bank or Wells Fargo, Uh, transportation choices, should I sell my Ford and buy a Ferrari, Uh, 
Should we have kids and how many or should we adopt? And then public school, private school or homeschool or obedience school. (laughs) Which church should we go to? And then do we sing in the choir? Do we help out in the nursery? Lots of ministry choices. And then giving choices and and sports choices, uh, music choices, restaurant, political choices, uh, media choices. I could go into options on all these, but you've got to choose a house and then a decor. And then uh, what about your hobbies or hobby or no hobby? And then health choices and workout choices and um, hairstyle choices and hot sauce choices. And then mixed up with all of those are a few little minor things like what should I believe? You know, doctrinal choices and attitude choices, things that have to do kind of with everything. How do we decide all of those? Now, maybe we can get some help on this from the Bible, which I've thought quite a lot about that. Wouldn't it be great if there was an answer to every single thing just written out in a passage of the Bible? But we know, even though that, we know that's not true, but we know that when we go to the Bible, we can learn a lot about how we process decisions. We could call it the doctrine of making decisions. Oh, that's not very original. I was thinking of a, a better title for that would be How Not to Be a Dork at the Fork. How about that? <laughs> Well, the next weeks, we're going to be working on that. This would be, I guess, biblical instructions for making decisions. Before we even get to the how we do that, we're going to have a couple of weeks on why, the why that undergirds all of the decisions we make. And then for four weeks, we're going to go through the how. So hopefully you got some notes today, and uh, these will be for seven weeks. So we're going to do two weeks on the front Four weeks in the middle, and then finally we're going to go to the back, and we're going to take a sample decision, and we're going to take what we learned, and we're going to apply it to that. It's a decision that we all make and something that maybe we could all use some encouragement on. Now, why do we do it in the order of the why before we go to the how? Well, here's something I think is, just makes sense um, biblically and otherwise. Why we do something is vastly more important than the what or the how. You think about two people, they make the same decision, but maybe the reason uh, is different, and the reason is going to actually make a big difference as whether a decision is good or great or whatever. It's, well, it's what we call the why. Like two of you this morning, maybe you decided to put $1,000 in the offering. Uh, if you were thinking about that and haven't done it so far, go ahead and go back to the box, it's okay. Now, one, one person does it, they believe that God uh, will... Reward them a hundredfold during the next 100 days. They heard that on TV last night. Some guy with a Rolex watch and an Armani suit, uh, you know, shark skin, and uh, evidently it's work for him. (laughs) But anyway, uh, the other person does so because they're very grateful for whatever God has given them, and they want to be responsible with that. They know that everything belongs to the Lord anyway. Now, it's the same gift, same decision, but a completely different why. Why? Motive makes a huge difference. Uh, Two guys were trying to make a decision about marriage, and they both decided to remain single. One of them decided that he would remain single because he couldn't find a girl that was good enough for him. And so he he figured he would just play the field. The other guy knows there's a dangerous ministry that must be, that he feels he could do that would honor God, but not with marriage responsibilities. Now, here again, same decision, a completely different why. Motive, again, makes a huge difference. And then I put it like this. If you don't start with a godly why, 
Um, you will never get a godly what? And then the how is not going to even matter. Uh, now, here's a, another point I would like to make, and that is has to do with the motives. The big purpose, the big why, the purpose is vastly bigger than specific motives for individual decisions. So I'm, sometimes I'll, maybe I'll use the word motive, and I mean you know, the big purpose, but I don't want to, I'll try to keep those separate. But uh, you can have a motive for something. In, in fact, I was listening to a lecture by a guy. He was a, a successful, prominent business leader speaking at Oxford University. And he said this, As you know, I've been very fortunate in my career, and I've made a lot of money, far more than I ever dreamed of, far more than I could ever spend, far more than my family needs. But then, uh, actually, a tear rolled down his cheek. He said, to be honest, one of my motives for making so much money was simple, to have the money to hire people to do what I don't like doing. But there's one thing I've never been able to hire anyone to do for me, find my own sense of purpose and fulfillment. I'd give anything to discover that. Now, you see, this man had motives for what he did, but he didn't have any sense of the ultimate purpose for it all. He didn't even know why he was taking up space on the planet. Uh, you might have been watching the World Cup, uh, Women's World Cup, a couple of weeks ago. And before the finals ever came, they had this, uh, this uh, slogan that came on as they advertised the games uh, for the uh, women's team. It said, if the women win, it is their why. The implication being they will have fulfilled why they were born. You know, this is who I am. This is what I was always for. I guarantee that a couple of months from now, from hearing from other athletes that have won world championships, emptiness will return. The hunger and the longing that only Christ can fill will not have been filled yet unless they already know the Lord or soon find out who he is. Uh, today, Edgar Martinez will be, in fact, maybe right now he's being inducted into the Hall of Fame, which is a beautiful thing. But for Edgar, that's not his why. You know, I hope he doesn't think that, that, uh, you know, there's a little line from John Candy from uh, Cool Runnings that you should read sometime or, or watch. Well, as Christians, we claim to have a corner on purpose. We know what purpose is all about. In fact, um, you know, obviously we have Rick Warren and the Purpose Driven Life in our corner, so we know all about it. And, and we know all about Jesus finding us, convincing our souls to believe in him as our Savior and Lord. Uh, we know that we're not in charge of our life, that we've been created and redeemed, and that this someone who did that most likely knows why we exist and that he alone has the right to define our purpose. Well, today we're going to look at, I'm going to preview three high-level reasons that should undergird every decision, and it's going to follow an acrostic, and then I'm going to focus in just on the first today. But the first one is, a, is the W. And so the W has to do with waste. This is on the front of your notes. You don't have to copy this down. That's, and so waste is something that we should try to avoid because we get only one life. So don't waste it with foolishness. Uh, the H has to do with honor, and that would be God's honor. And that's something that we must try to promote, not avoid. Uh, in every decision we make, the honor of God is so important. And uh, we'll be getting into that next week. And then also the why. The why has to do with the word yield. And so we try to live in such a way and make decisions so that we increase the yield of the things that God invested in us, our gifts and our opportunities. So we're, we're, we're like the two wise stewards in the parable of the talents, not like the third numbskull who buried his talent. 
That's next week. Today we're going to look at the W. Avoiding a wasted life by living wisely and not foolishly. This is really the masthead over this whole series. And if we don't get this right, then I don't know that anything else needs to be talked about. We actually start where everybody has to start, and that is that you just can't do everything. You can't marry every person, every attractive person you see. You cannot attend every college that you would like to go to or, or um, study every major that fascinates you. You can't climb every mountain and ford every stream. Uh, you can't wear all your clothes every day unless you're two and you leak. Uh, so we have to make decisions because this isn't eternity yet. We have time limits. Now, many passages tell us to be wise in our decisions because the days are short. We're on a countdown. Uh, One of my favorites is Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days, this is a prayer, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. How easy it is to fritter away your life when you think it's going to go forever, so it's no big deal. Uh, But you can then be caught short. So wise people, uh, uh, I think I got this just from a song, but it's probably a saying of some kind. People who count their days tend to make their days count. And that's really important. That's a wisdom issue. Now, other verses uh, said you should have wisdom because not just because your days are short, but because the days are evil. And this would be found in a place like Ephesians 5, where it says this, Be careful, then, how you live. That is, uh, not as unwise people, but as wise. That is, make thoughtful, godly, righteous decisions. Making the most of the time, there's the feeling of the shortness there, uh, making sure that none of it get wasted, gets wasted by sinful choices. But then it adds this, because the days are evil. Now, there's two ways to take that. Why did he add that, well, because the days are evil? Well, one would be that because the days are evil, you're being inundated by a culture that's sweeping you in a direction that would uh, take your heart away from a godly life to a, a life of wasted sinfulness. And so that could be one of it. You know, the devil's on the move. Be careful. Uh, the other way to take it is that because the days are evil, the, this world requires something of your heart. That is to reach in and try to intervene where this lost generation is being swept toward destruction. So it's like you're in a battle zone, and as in all war, every decision can be crucial. Um, Paul ends with this verse, Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And in this context, this would mean the will of the Lord is a life of holiness set apart to God, not conformed to the world, but conformed to the ways of God. Constantly take stock of how God wants you to live in a bad world. Well, so here's our first characteristics of a a great decision. And it's simply this. A great decision saves you from spinning your wheels, that is wasting your life, by missing the main thing. A decision then, let's put it in the negative here, can never be great unless it fits with and advances God's largest, greatest purpose for your life. It's a waste to play a game, let's say, to give a little example here. Play a ball game and forget where the goal line is or that you're supposed to make baskets or, you know, uh, I was thinking about that. If you started into a game and you thought, you could win by committing the fewest fouls and having the fewest penalties. Then you would you would think, oh, I'm in great point. I'm in great shape here. Or if you're playing baseball, the most ground balls wins. Or 
You're playing soccer and you say, I need to accumulate the most corner kicks. That will win the game. You might as well not play the game if you don't get the, if you don't get the goal right. And so that's what we're talking about here. Now, with this statement goes a couple of fork questions. And uh, a fork question is not the indecision you have at a formal dinner. Uh, let's say you, uh, next week I think we have men's, men's barbecue, right? Are we going to have a cornhole tournament this year? I think so. I think I saw that in there. Uh, and so if we do, if we have some winners, inevitably they're going to be invited to the White House and they're going to have a dinner in their honor and they're going to be sitting down there and they're going to have no idea what fork to use for the appetizer course. Uh, I thought of titling this whole thing, Hillbillies at the White House. But anyway, uh, really a fork question. This had nothing to do with that. It's the question that you should ask when you're at the place, the fork in the road where a decision needs to be made. And the first six questions help you focus in on the purpose, the why. And we settle that before we get to the how. And so here's fourth question number one. Does this decision respect the brevity of life and the evil of our times? If so, how? Now this plays off the two passages we've already looked at. So we, we have to factor in how fleeting your life is and how godless your city is. Uh, think of your calendar. Um, it's soon going to be August. I mean, where has this year gone? Uh, I mean, it's like it's been stolen. We, I, I just got the Christmas tree stand put away. And then I have to ask, what have we gotten done? So you look around your house. Well, you know, a lot of loads of laundry got done. And uh, we watched some baseball and some movies maybe. And uh, the bathroom got cleaned a few times and uh, sorted mail and paid the bills, we hope. And, uh, and then you got dragged around to uh, events that your spouse scheduled for you without your knowledge. And then, uh, and you went to work a few times. <laughs> but Scripture cautions us to keep asking, when I get to the end of my life, will I have lived the length of it but have missed the depth of it? In other words, the length of it, that would be 25 or 30 short years. It could be a, a hundred short years. But when you finish with all of that, will you have lived the length of it, but not the depth of it. That is, you got a string of events by the thousands. Started with diapers, ends with diapers, uh, doctor visits, night shifts, trips to Lake Chelan, I mean, all these things. But will we have done all of that with um, more, pretty much the same thing that that Oxford businessman shared, oblivious to purpose? Just kind of went from one thing to the next. No urgency, no unspeakable joy because you are living the life that God gave you, uh, and then it's over. I call this the deadline question. And you know how a deadline works? You know you get close to the deadline, and then you start putting on a lot of focus <laughs> on what needs to get done. So if it's a test, you know you start cramming. If it's a uh, if it's like last-minute guests that come, it's amazing how quick you can clean your house when people are going to be arriving in 20 minutes. Uh, and then anything that doesn't get done, you know, gets crammed in the, uh, in the bedroom and you keep the door closed. Of course, we never do that, but you might. Well, this is actually what the Bible is trying to do when it reminds us how short t- the time is and how evil the days are. It's, really, it's saying to us, look, get moving. The end is closer than you think. And the world is more in trouble than you think. And in the meantime, you only get one 
trip around the track. You will waste your life if you ignore the fact that you can only live this one life that God has given you to invest. You don't get a a second chance, a do-over. You do not get a mulligan. And this is this is why I go to Liberia every chance I have because I I know that times are evil there and I know that I'm not getting any younger so I need to go while I can still do it uh, because life is short, times are evil. But it also is the reason I spend time with my grandchildren. I want them to know me. I want to know them. I remember my mom when I took Stephen in there. He was just just turned one year old, or just turning one, sat him on the bed there at Saint, at uh, Good Sam, and she was dying of lymphatic cancer, and she would be dead in a few days. And she was weeping because she said, I'm going to miss Stephen growing up. Uh, that was 30 years ago, just a few days ago, on the 10th, I was at her grave. Uh, exactly 30 years she had died. She missed a lot. And I miss her. Life is short and times are evil. Now, if you ignore the brevity and the evil of days, then you will default to a lot of trivial things or there will be a whole lot of mundane things that you don't see the purpose in. You need to get some focus. And the Bible tells us where the focus of an unwasted life has to be for it to have eternal impact. And this comes in our second fork question. Uh, and here's where we find out about the main thing. I call this the crucial question. Does this decision tighten your focus on the ultimate treasure, Jesus Christ? And then you can go with, you know, how or how not. We had a plaque growing up. It really pretty much summarizes these two fork questions. Many good Christian homes, for some reason, have this weird wall decor. Uh, and it said this, only one life will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. How many have seen this plaque before I heard this statement? Lots of you. Okay. And, and ours was exactly like this one. I've seen many editions of it. But anyway, uh, for me, it was a sentimental knickknack. I, I never really thought about what it meant. Uh, the greatest turning point in my life was when I was a senior in high school. My Sunday school teacher, her name was Agnes, God bless her, came up to me after Sunday school in the fall of my senior year, and she said, hey, Bruce, you're a senior. I said, you got a lot of decisions to make. She said, let me ask you a question. Now, I, think she, I thought she was going to ask me, where are you thinking of going to college, or what are you going to study, or you know, what's next for you? She didn't ask that at all. She asked this question, Bruce, who are you, gonna, who are you planning to live for for the rest of your life? And, and I, I wanted to be a smart aleck because I wanted to correct your grammar. I wanted to say, you know, it, it would be whom are you planning to live for? Or even better than that, because you can't live with, a, live with a preposition at the end, it would be for whom are you planning to live for the rest of your life? But I put that aside because the Lord was doing something with that question. I never thought of my life that way, like you have to choose who you're going to live for or what. Uh, I never intended to do anything evil in my life, so I thought I was just fine. But to be honest, I had been planning to live my whole life for myself because that's what I've been doing so far. And it slayed me to admit it. 
And in fact, God broke me. (laughs) In his mercy, he broke me. He showed me the ugliness of a heart that is bound by pride and selfish ambition. In effect, it was the ultimate evil. It was, uh, I, I think of it as a rooster crowing moment. Because like Peter, I went out and I wept bitterly. <laughs> I can barely even think about that without wanting to cry because of the mercy of God. My life has really never been the same, and yet every morning it's the same question. Hey, Bruce, who are you planning to live for today? Because a lifetime is made up of all those days. And I call this the crucial question because it calls your heart toward Christ and away from yourself. And we need that more than anything. Without answering this question, well, no decision is worth a witch's wart. Crucial declares war on casual. Crucial kicks dirt on natural. Natural is where it's all about you. Crucial means essential. Now, you can easily underplay what living for Christ would be. You could say, well, I live for Christ, which simply might mean uh, that your decisions are morally good, living an upright life like Jesus would want. No, that is not the main thing. It's a good thing, but it is not the main thing. Like me as a teenager, living for Jesus is not equal, uh, having good friends, uh, being moral on dates, uh, avoiding drugs. Actually, I had all that. I just didn't have Jesus, if you understand where I'm going with this. Paul did not say, for me to live is to please Christ by making the most moral decisions. In fact, he had gobs of morality before he ever met Christ. But his new focus was way different. It was not a parade, a parade of wise and holy actions. It was a supreme person. So he said this, for me, for to me to live is Christ. Anything short of that is going to be primarily about you and how you live, and that will be a wasted life. Paul reviewed his life before Christ in Philippians chapter 3. He called all of it rubbish. Why? Because self-righteous pride kept him from Christ, the ultimate pleasure. And I want to read some of this for you from Philippians 3. He wrote this, whatever gain, gain would be treasure or all the moral credits that he accumulated on his moral bank account, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. That is, it, it was like counterfeit money. It doesn't even add up to anything. I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the supreme treasure of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, just knowing him. I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Knowing Christ surpassed everything else, he's saying. And then he says, that I may know him. As Jesus said, you could go ahead, try to gain the world, but you will lose or forfeit your own soul, Mark chapter 8. Every decision you make reveals your treasure. You think about what your life is all about. And so think about what dominates your identity. How would you label yourself? What makes your day? What ruins your day? What drives you? Not what you do you drive, but what drives you? What has to happen for you to feel like, you know, everything's okay? 
I want you to write something down. This is a little bit long, but I think you can make some space there and write small. Any decision that ignores or distracts or detracts from your focus on the surpassing value of Christ is automatically going to make you waste a precious chunk of your one short life. Let me say that again or read that again. Any decision that ignores or distracts, you can put a from in there if you want, distracts from or detracts from, your focus on the surpassing value of Christ is automatically going to make you waste a precious chunk of your one short life. So, for instance, you say, for me to live is, I used to love to play racquetball, so let's say, for me to live is racquetball. That's a waste. I mean, not playing racquetball, but living for racquetball or any other sport or activity you might have. Uh, For you to say, okay, for me to live is making money. That's a waste if that's your life purpose. For me to live is getting praised and admired. That's going to be a waste because let's say you get criticized. That ruins your day. You get an award. That makes your day. So you, you see what that's, that's your life. That's your identity. That's what drives you. Serving my children. To me, is serving my children. That's a wasted life. And that may sound severe. I want to tell you why it's not severe. And in fact, there are two reasons. Here's the first one. Because you were made for nothing else than Jesus as your supreme treasure. See, you were not made for any of those things. Your sport or your career or your money or even your family. And if the main thing is missing, then all of those things are a waste. You were made, let's put it like this, you were made for the exaltation and enjoyment of Jesus Christ, period. Everything else has to be subservient to that. Everything else has to contribute to that in some way, or it's pure garbage. Paul said his great goal was this, his, great, his eager expectation and his hope. This is Philippians 1-2. It was to exalt Christ, whether by life or by death. So get this. Living the rest of your life for Jesus is not just doing things for Jesus that he needs you to do or wants you to do. Like if you just find out his will for your career and all of that. You know, that is not your life. It has everything to do with knowing and treasuring Jesus. He came for you because he wants you to know him. Jesus didn't say this, follow my teachings. He said, follow me. And this is why dying would be gain for Paul. Because if he dies, then he gets even more of his great treasure face to face. That's what his life is all about. Remember Mary and Martha? Hope I have time to talk about them. It's Luke chapter 10, a tale of two sisters. They're at home in Bethany. Jesus visits for, this is not, too long before his death, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. You know all about this. And Martha was getting into a frothy dither over fixing lunch. Frothy dithers, by the way, are, are worse than the regular kind. But anyway, let's, let's read a little bit of this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and the woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. It's apparent that Jesus already knew these people. But anyway, we'll call Martha the perfect hostess. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Now that all sets up the kerfuffle to follow, trading rebukes that we're going to see 
And so it's it's actually it's going to be two on one. If you if it's going to be two on one, I want to be on Jesus' side. And so Martha's in trouble. So here we go, Martha, and she went up to him. You almost hear her stomping her feet, and said, and this rebuke is just full of hurt and offense. Hands on hips, mad, Lord. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? That is, you're supposed to look out for me. You're not paying any attention. You, you don't need her. I do. She's not doing anything. Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her. And the rest are the words of Jesus. These are the words of Jesus. If you have a Bible with red, you know, for the words of Christ, all the rest is red. The Lord answered her. Martha, Martha. Now let me say that again because tone of voice will make a big difference here. Martha, Martha. The way he repeats that, there's such tenderness to that and pleading. Martha, Martha. And in our Lord's rebuke, how patient he is with her. Uh, He had been letting her, basically, uh, be distracted, her distracted, driven self, had not been telling her how to run her kitchen. But he goes on with this, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. It's not that I'm oblivious to how you're feeling, Martha. Let's see, do I have this right? Distracted, anxious, troubled, concerned, to do everything possible to make this welcome a grand one. I am not ungrateful, but many things, <laughs> that equals frothy dither. <laughs> Don't think I don't know or care. I know your heart very well. But do you know mine? And here's how he expresses it. But one thing is necessary. I see what you need, but do you know what I need? Now, one thing could mean just one dish is plenty. Don't think you've got to multiply courses to this meal. But I think it means something else. I think it points to the one thing that her sister Mary was doing, the one necessary thing that surpasses all others. And so he says it like this, Mary has chosen the good portion. Mary is not obsessed about any red couch, for sure. She is sitting on the floor. (laughs) The good portion, what does that mean? Well, that's a phrase that referred to the choice morsel that would be given to an honored guest. She was offering Jesus, in fact, the thing that honored him most, the thing that made him most welcome. She was indeed the perfect hostess because her attention was focused completely on her perfect guest, and her delight was in him, and that delighted him. That she delighted in him was his great delight. And so he called that the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. This was the one thing necessary. Now, as a kid, I admired this passage because I felt like it taught that my mom shouldn't make me do stuff in the kitchen. But believe me, this has nothing to do with the evils of culinary activities. And it's not about, oh, you know, people are made differently and, you know, they can serve the Lord how they want to. No, this is a competition of what matters most to Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes this is taught as a, you know, a quiet time ad. Read your Bible and pray more. Certainly do that before you get into your daily chores and all of that. But it is far, far more than that. It offers us a homely paradigm for a life of purpose, a life of focus on the one thing that matters most to Jesus. 
And so in this little interchange, we have two different ways that you might try to live your life for Jesus, one vastly superior to the other. It shows that living for Christ does not mean doing things for him because Martha was very good at that while missing the main thing. Humble Sister Mary typified the focus Jesus wants for us and from us. An unwasted life means making Christ your treasure, exalting him as the love of your life and by reverent devotion, showing what he is worth to everyone who will pay attention. So there in that humble Judean home, the priority was Jesus. It was a time of darkness for Jesus. In nearby Jerusalem, that's where the enemies conspired. His, the days were evil. Time was short for Jesus. Just in six months from then, on, he'd be on a cross of hatred, just a 30-minute walk from there. But there's Mary, listening at his feet, as close to him as she can get, reverent, teachable, hungry, for whatever he is serving. And why? So she can know him. That's why she hangs on every word. No, Martha thought it was a waste, and she's not doing anything. And later Judas would say it's a waste when she was anointing Jesus' feet with that expensive perfume. But her life was not being wasted. Her life was glorious. And Jesus loved her for it, and he won't let anyone stop her, not Martha, not Judas. He was her joy, and she was his. He was her good shepherd, and she knew his voice, and she loved his voice. And he was her companion, her friend in good times, and now in in the valley of death's shadow. And not just the death of Jesus, but again later at her brother Lazarus' grave, where Jesus wept with her. And before he did that, where Martha had to go and say, you know, the teacher is asking for you. Why? Not just because he wanted to comfort her. He wanted to weep with her, and he did. Because he was her friend in those hard times. And it was not long before she would anoint Jesus himself for burial with costly perfume, wiping his feet with her hair. He was Mary's anthem, her great delight. Her lamb when she sinned, her lion when she feared. He was the one she would continue to exalt and love above all rivals. In fact, she exemplifies what it is to be his disciple. Jesus said it so strongly in Luke 14 that it's shocking. He intended it to be shocking. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So this is the crucial question. Will you love and value Jesus so much, so supremely, that every other love looks like hatred? I said there were two reasons why put anything in in front of Christ, in place of Christ, in that phrase, for me to live is will make your life a waste. The first was that you were made for nothing else but Jesus as your supreme treasure. But here's the second one. Because all other things can be taken away from you, but not Jesus. Your riches can be stolen. Your health 
can go downhill so fast. Your beauty can fade. Your children can leave you or die. Your hobbies, your career, think about all of it, your reputation, even your church, everything. Nothing else is guaranteed to last. Go back to Martha and Mary for a minute. The very last phrase I didn't comment about, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says something extraordinary about the devotion Mary was rendering to him that day. It will last. It's permanent. It will survive this life and count for eternity. And it's the very reason Paul could say, to die is gain. Satisfaction with Christ is the one thing that most certainly lasts, and it will only increase in the next life. It is why we were made. This is purpose. Now, I want you to be very stubborn about how you answer the second fork question. When you think about what is the main focus of your life, is Jesus Christ my treasure? Who, who am I trying to exalt in my life? And I want you to sound the way Paul sounded in 1 Corinthians 2. When he says this, and this I will call this the best decision you will ever make, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Those words, I decided, are the ones I want you to think about. I decided, this is Paul's answer to the crucial question. This is the great decision that relates to the crucial question. There's a book called Don't Waste Your Life. I'm going to recommend some books as we go through this series, so this is the first one. And there's a little section he put in here that related to this statement by Paul, and then he talks about some people. First of all, about Ruby and Laura. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was 80. I think I got some pictures there. Here we go. Ruby was 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, this is John Piper, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted, and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it, Mark 8, 35. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of the Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. So we've got another picture of their life. At first when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream. But it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. 
Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. One of the old saints called the life purpose. We're talking about today the explosive power of a focused passion. It's what Campbell Morgan called the supreme necessity. And you don't leave this to a coin flip. It's the one decision that only has one right direction. One right, undebatable, unassailable answer. No other option is tolerable. It's the priority of all priorities. This is not, oh, Burger King or Taco Bell on the way home. (laughs) This is like this, oh, Lord, I have to bury my father first kind of a thing. And we have a gal here in church today whose father died on Friday. I can't imagine something more important than burying your father. But no, Jesus said, even above that, leave the dead to bury their dead. Follow me. A necessity, a crucial passion. This is another way that Jesus put it. Heaven's kingdom is taken by force. Eager men are forcing their way into it. Because this is the only option. If the supreme necessity is Christ as your life, that is your surpassing treasure, then every other decision must serve that necessity. Paul simply said it like this in those seven words, for to me to live is Christ. To be gripped by any other passion other than the one for which you were made is to waste your life. To be gripped by any other passion, like any of the things that can inevitably be taken from you, that is a waste of your life. Nothing in the rest of this series on decision-making will make the slightest difference if you don't get this right first. Because without this, finding the perfect spouse or the perfect school or the perfect job or the perfect church or the perfect red couch, all of which you may feel as, oh, this is God's will for me, none of that will matter at all. And I will tell you why, because it will all be about you. And no offense, but you, by yourself, are not a large enough object, not a large enough purpose, not a large enough why for the soul that God gave you. Because he gave you an immortal soul that was meant only for Christ since before the foundation of the world. So we end with this. Here's the question. Who are you planning to live for the rest of your life? (laughs) This is what Joe was sweating about in a way, you know, he's got a job change. This is what I asked Joe. This is what I asked Sarah about becoming a doctor. This is what I asked Mary and her husband about becoming a missionary or not. This is what I asked Ray and Janet about retirement. And you get all uptight about other decisions and call them major decisions like spouse, school, and career and all that, or even about a red couch, as if they were major decisions. But there is just one major decision in all of this world, in all of this life. And if you don't settle this crucial question first, none of the rest matter. This is the supreme necessity. Have you settled this firmly in your heart? Have you bowed your knee before God and tightened and sharpened your focus on the ultimate treasure, which is Christ? Because otherwise you're a Martha, you're not a Mary. I want you to be a Mary sitting at his feet, 
listening, learning, loving him with all your heart. This is the good part. This is the choice morsel. And by the way, you want to know what God wants? What does God want? And I started my answer with the first three words, he wants you. But then I couldn't stop there because that implied that you're the big focus of it all and you're not. So I end it with this because really the universe is just all about Christ. His preeminence. All things created through him and for him, including you. So I put it like this. God wants you to have the sublime joy of knowing and loving and listening to and treasuring his beloved son. So this morning, hear the Father speak as he spoke at the baptism of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. What he said to the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And then listen to the words of Jesus as he spoke to his father. In John 17, in the great prayer, verse 3, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. O Father in glory, you who have committed to us by grace the great treasure of your Son. We bow before you. We confess how trivial so many of our Worries have been the things that seem to get us in knots and recognize that this one thing is where our heart needs to feast. May we be like Mary at your feet, Lord Jesus. May we be an honor to you because we have given to you what you love most. Accept our worship in the name of Christ. Amen.